Welcome back to the 28 Dales Later at the Book Flood podcast. This is a selection of author talks and question and answer sessions that were recorded live during the nine-day Book Flood event at Moorforge Viking Settlement in Northwest Cumbria. We were really lucky to have lots of the authors that came and although we only had them for a couple of hours, we enjoyed listening to them and picking their brains and then we were really fortunate to have David Mark join us for two days this is the first of his talks, and he tells us all about how he got into crime writing. Uh, well, look, it's very nice to, to be here. It's very nice to be anywhere where I can talk about books without being interrupted, um, because most people who make a living in the book world are kind of evangelical about books. Uh, it's the most important thing in your life. It's the biggest story in your life. It's all that matters to you. It's largely because you fall in love with books when you're a child. Um, this, the, this idea that these words on a page contain these treasures and then it's shared with you and pictures emerge in your head and those pictures started off in somebody else's head and it's this, this transfer of imagination is just such a beautiful thing. Um, so when you fall in love with books as a kid, it's a love that, that sustains you and only grows stronger. And that was very much the case for me when I when I was a when I was a lad, um, four or five years old. Favorite part of the day was when my mum or my dad or my nana would read me a story, um, and in my my nana's case, when she'd throw the book away and just start making up some nonsense, um, and just the idea that she could riff on an idea and make something up was just brilliant to me. So I I when I discovered at about six or seven years old that it was possible to become a novelist, that it was a job then that was it. That was the only thing that was ever worth my time. Um, I grew up in a you know, fairly, I won't say a rough area, but it certainly wasn't particularly um, Chipping Norton, shall we say. Um, it was it was an area where a lot of people were called names that ended in as. So there was like Waz and Baz and Gaz and loads of people like that. And a lot of hair salons run by people called Shazza. And it was just that kind of vibe. A lot of people who essentially ran on pastry. Um, and I, that was very much the world that I saw unravelling in front of me, unless I did something remarkable. And the only thing I could think of that was remarkable was becoming a novelist. So I made this conscious decision at about seven or eight years old that no matter what happened in life, I was going to become a writer. I was, that was it. Um, so I started writing. Every story that occurred to me, everything that happened, I started writing a diary, um, the, the games I'd play with my toys during the day, once I'd put my toys away and go to bed, I'd just carry on the game in my head, but without the toys. And you realise that you're essentially learning the, the, the craft of storytelling in that way. Um, became a teenager, nothing, nothing had changed in my mind. I was reading very adult, very classic novels, um, thinking to myself, how, how are people actually getting up and going to work when they could be sat down reading? Um, it just seemed a so much superior world. I couldn't understand this need to engage with reality. I was so much happier in my imagination, um, which kind of set the tone for when my uh, brain went horribly wrong um, and kind of ate itself like a bag of snakes. Um, so my teens weren't the happiest time, uh, essentially because I, I was a creative person, I was an imaginative person um, in a, a sea of people who kind of mocked anything that wasn't within a very very narrow world view so it's kind of a lonely time and as you do in those circumstances you retreat more and more into what you find comfortable so I spent more and more time in my own mind 
Um, as a result of that, I became a far better poet and I became a far better human being in many ways and I could feel with all of my senses and I, I, I kind of lived my life turned up to a certain level. I was constantly, I didn't run away from feeling, I ran towards it. And it all helped that when I finally got to a position where I could start to write things that people might want to read, I had this big, this, this inkwell within me of, of pure raw feeling. Um, and unfortunately, when I punctured it, it was very much like somebody had stepped on a squid. It was just, it was just darkness. Um, so my first attempts at, at novels were beautiful and just so bleak and miserable and vile that nobody would ever want to to, to read them. Um, very much, like if if like imagine James Joyce with a hangover, and you're kind of getting somewhere to, towards that zone. Um, I didn't really. <coughs> Other than the fact that I knew I had to be this thing, I had to be an author, the actual getting from point A to point C, I had no real clue as to what B was going to look like. I figured that at some point a book publisher would would break down outside our house and come in and ask to use the phone and just say, oh, and do you happen to have any unpublished novels under your bed? Brilliant. Well, that's, that, that's the way to play it. Uh, Oddly enough, that didn't happen. So I, I reached the stage, I was like 17, 18, didn't want to go to university, couldn't see the point, didn't want to um, be like everybody else, couldn't see the point, um, played the saxophone. Um, so obviously I was too cool to do anything that other people would do. Um, and I was very lucky in that the way that, you know, sometimes the clouds part and the sun shines and my local newspaper decided that it wanted uh, some apprentices to learn how to be journalists and not go through the traditional um, traditional route um, and my mum uh, god bless her decided that she would apply for this position on my behalf um, which was jolly kind of her so I, essentially I was invited for an interview with the News and Star uh, in Carlisle at 17 years of age to see if I wanted to become a trainee journalist um, and with that hubris of youth I was like well yeah I could do that no, no bother no problem at all uh, and I got this job as a trainee journalist on the News and Star, and within a week I was covering murder trials and court cases and going and knocking on people's doors and saying, you know, I understand your mum's just died, would you like to talk about it? Um, and that whole thing that now as a man in my mid-40s I find a lot of what I used to do for a job rather distasteful, but at the time it needed to be done and I knew I was good at it. So I, I spent 10 plus years as a journalist, um, spending lots and lots of time at crime scenes, lots and lots of time with people who um, had been bereaved or, or worse yet, um, whose family had committed you know, horrible misdeeds and learning to, 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 to provide a safe space in which those people would share their, t their secrets, they would share their truths, share their confidences. That was the best training imaginable to become a novelist. Um, so I had all of this stuff sloshing around inside me, but I, it still wasn't anything close to what I wanted to be, which was a novelist. So I could, t I could make the, the next 10 years of that story take 10 years to tell. But suffice to say, I made quite a lot of poor decisions in life, drank a great deal, um, caused myself an awful lot of, uh, of, of headaches, both real and imagined, and finally got round to the situation of writing a genuine novel with genuine heart and genuine feeling, genuine characters. Uh, and the difficult part of it was that I knew it was good, but as anybody who's attempted writing, 
you have self-doubt all the time but when you have those moments where you believe that this is actually good the terror of what the hell to do with it next now you've actually written this good thing that's absolutely mind-boggling even if you're a journalist even if you spend your life interviewing people and talking to politicians and talking to convicted murderers the idea of actually going up to a, a, a london publishing house and saying you know i'm i'm a novelist would you like to publish me terrifying absolutely terrifying so i sat on on my manuscripts for an edge until finally i thought well look i'm not happy this is what i want to be this is what i want to do i'm a journalist you know don't be scared uh, sent off manuscripts left, right and centre to all manner of literary agents, publishing houses uh, and roundly rejected uh, because my work was too bleak, too dark, too similar to another author called David Peace and as they said to me, he's northern so we sort of don't need any others um, which was very much, uh, yeah, I, I, that gave me a bit of an idea as to why it was such a London-centric industry um, and for once in my life, I didn't fall apart. Uh, I, I I took this this is the situation. This is my status quo. They, right, they need you to stand out. They need you to be something other than what than than the writer that you currently are. How do you do that? Well, what do you like reading? I like reading crime novels. What have you got that other people haven't got? Well, I've got an authentic background. I know what it feels like to be in those rooms when the worst possible news is delivered to somebody. Well, write about that then. Um, and essentially I did. Uh, I, I dreamed up a new character, a new setting, um, a new a, a new story with heart, um, and I went away and wrote it. And that kind of changed my life. Um, I sent off this, this book to uh, my, an agent who, who'd shown interest in me <coughs> in the past. Uh, he loved it, decided that he was going to represent me, I kind of sat back and thought, well, it's all going to happen now. This, this is it. Life's amazing. Uh, he sent it off to every publisher under the sun. Publishers all turned around and said pretty much the same thing. Still too dark, still too bleak, still too northern. Um, which is quite a tricky thing to deal with because it's all that you've got. I am dark, I am bleak, and I am northern. There's not a lot else that I can give you. Um, but thankfully, thankfully, a year later... Um, I had one of my infamous temper tantrums, uh, which anybody who knows me well will say happens very rarely, but when they do happen, I, you know, it's a seismic event. And I decided that my agent had basically hadn't sold me the way I would have sold myself. Because, um, you know, nobody knows you better than you know you, and you know what you've got to offer. And they tried to, he, he tried to make me sound like somebody I wasn't, and I, could, I understand why I, I, I didn't seem. Um, kind of didn't give the truth of me he gave a, a version of me so I thought well I don't want you to be my agent anymore you're not making any money, you're not doing anything I haven't got a book deal so I asked another guy, would you like to be my agent and he said uh, well send me your book so I did um, and this was on a Friday and he was on his, and this is, this is agents for you he was on a flight to Budapest because that's what people in London do in between sipping skinny chai lattes and you know um, he's on a flight to Budapest and he read it on his BlackBerry, right? Um, and he got he, he got to the far end of the flight, and then phoned me and says, "I absolutely love this book. I'd love to represent you. Brilliant." So I was like, "Oh, cool. That's good." And I, he says, "Well, what's the dream? What do you really want to happen?" And I says, "Well, I want to be a novelist. I want to I want to not do anything that isn't involved in being a novelist." Um, and he's like, "Right." He says, "Well, money. What do you th what, what do you want?" I was like, "Well, I'd like to be able to buy a new computer, 
but other than that I don't care I just want to be an, a novelist and he's like right I can definitely work with you um, I think it was the I don't care about money aspect that uh, came back to bite me on the ass, as you can imagine but um, so he sent this book off to everybody and, and he, he had the masterstroke of not putting my name on it um, and changing the title so everybody who'd read it in its previous form a month or so before and said no they were all like oh who's this guy they read it um, and in the space of a week pretty much every major publishing house um, had got in touch with me to try and persuade me to go with them rather than uh, with any of their competitors so I, st I mean it still delights me you know fast forward this, this was 12 years ago and I'm in the kitchen at work in a job I despise surrounded by people I want to punch um, and literary agent and editor and and publishing directors ringing me up saying look we really think that you you're going to be our next big thing you're going to be our guy you know we're going to make you an offer that you can't believe at the time I was on 25 grand a year as a journalist um, but half of that was going on getting to from to work and back again and the other half I was drinking so really money wasn't that much of an importance to me um, but I, it came down to five different publishing houses who were all offering me between 40 and 50 grand a book which you know it's just mad really um and my agent had said to me whatever you do whoever you go with don't give up your, your day job because you don't get these kind of offers very often um so immediately as the second that i signed with quercus um i uh left work uh, <laughs> because what's the point of doing this what's the point of getting your dream if you're not going to then turn around and say you know, and I waited until it was the busiest shift imaginable um, and then just stood up, put my coat on and walked out. It was the best feeling. I think everybody should do that at least once in their life. Um, and that book that had been called Prayers of Intercession when I'd been trying to pitch it uh, was now called Dark Winter. And within a month of that of signing, um, we had deals in another six languages. Um, it was picked as a Richard and Judy book list uh, it was on all of the um, book of the year lists and huge, huge deal. I got very unrealistic uh, vision of what it's like to be an author. Um, I was being, you know, up and down to London constantly, being taken to nice restaurants, taken to, to bookish events, being wheeled out as the next big thing. You know, Val McDermott, who'd been my literary hero, she, uh, she interviewed me on stage in front of 600 people and you know, said that I was the next big thing and I was the guy and it was just, honestly, if you, if the story ended there, it would be absolutely a rocky moment of just, you know, I'd overcome adversity, I'd kept my brain together and I'd become the thing I'd set out, uh, set out to be. And still, of, of all the things I've done in my life, that becoming the thing I set out to be is, was the most significant thing. Everything else was kind of just garnished to that. It was like, I, as a child, I said, I'm going to be an author. And at 35, I became an author. And there hadn't been any let up in the level of effort or belief in that interim. So it was that, that that's the bit I feel proud of. After that, it all kind of went a bit tits up. Um, largely because the first book had gone so well that my publishers didn't really believe that they would need to publish to market me anymore. Um, so books two, three, four, five in the McAvoy series, um, all critically hugely well received, 
commercially. I'm not an accountant, but I can. I think the word flop um, was on the spreadsheet quite a lot. So places like Tesco, Sainsbury's, all of those places that sell your books, um, if they've stocked you and you haven't sold, um, tell you what, I'll do a little segue here because I think it's important that you know this. Um, the, one of the biggest things that has affected the British book market is Tesco and the supermarkets. People, this idea that you should be buying your books with your groceries has had more of a knock-on effect than anything else, more than Amazon, more than Kindle, anything. This notion that you should be, you know, you should be going and getting your, getting a head of lettuce and two Martina Coles is just repugnant to me. Because if you are lucky enough to get selected to be one of the 20 or 30 new books that are sold in one of these big big giants and you don't sell so well often because you're not discounted and the household name you're next to they are discounted the next time that your publisher's saying well we've got this this guy all they do is look at the spreadsheet and say well we had his last one it didn't sell very well nothing else matters it didn't sell very well who else you got and that's you done that's you know you've still got a career but you've gone from being somebody who can command you know a, a, a decent advance um, to suddenly you can't command much of an advance at all because the supermarkets won't touch you. And that's kind of the, the knock-on effect that that has, has, has affected more people's uh, sales than, than almost anything else. So I think it's important if you're, going to, you know, if you're interested in the book world, that is a thing worth, worth remembering. Um, not as though I can point you in the direction of any way you should be buying your books instead, really, because Waterstones is essentially a really large um, stationary uh, outfit. Um, and then you've got an Amazon, which is brilliant for the customer, but you know slightly morally um, questionable. So it's a tricky one. It'd be nice if every sh if every town had a little independent bookshop, with you know some some really bookish person running it, and they love books, and you know they would they'd hand them out, and it, it would be great. But it, you know, capitalism. What are you gonna do? Um, so yeah, fast forward a little bit, um, my career had stalled a wee bit, another publisher came in, said, we, we, we seem to recall David Mark was going to be the next big thing, what happened to him? They're like, well, we're still publishing him, but nobody's buying him. Oh, brilliant. Um, they decided that they were going to uh, rescue me, um, offered me, an obs honestly, a ridiculously obscene amount of money to, to, to leave my failing career and go with them. As if I was ever going to say no, um, they could have had me for so much less, um, but my agent, you know, really did make it seem as though I had a lot more of an emotional tie to my previous publishers. When in, in truth, like you know, Tuba Smarties had gone, wasn't a problem. Um, so yeah, they gave me a fortune. Uh, now, as a as as an alcoholic with mental health problems, the last thing you want to do is give me a, a fortune because I will make poor decisions. Um, which which I proceeded to do. Um, for, 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 for a detailed version of that story, I'd recommend you read Peace of Mind, um, which is basically about living with uh, a brain that is slowly coming apart like a flan in a cupboard. Um, that's kind of about that. But nevertheless, it's a good, it, it's a, it, it's a good news story um, because career was briefly revitalized back to the top of the number one bestseller lists everything's good um and same thing happened again uh tesco said oh his last one didn't sell blah blah, blah. but you know what the graph of most people's life uh, you know tends to be quite basic 
mine looks like a Toblerone, so I, I'm I'm all right with that. I'd I'd rather have more ups and downs. I'm I'm not a I'm not a beige kind of guy, you know. Um, so that kind of brings me up to where I'm at at the moment, which is that I've published, I've written seventeen novels. I've been a Sunday Times bestseller. I've I've been, you know, I've I've been a New York Times bestseller. I've been an Amazon bestseller. Um, my work's been adapted for the stage, for radio. I've sold the TV and film rights loads of times without it ever actually being made, which is the perfect situation because they give you money for nothing. Um, it's yeah. So it's it's. Uh, but the most important thing is that I'm at a stage now where I know that every idea that I have. I get to write um, and that everything that I write gets to become an actual book and every book will find a reader. Um, so I am everything that I wanted it, want it to be. The idea, you know, money's comes and goes. That's just, money's just money in it, you know. I've never met anybody who's really rich who looks as though their happiness goes all the way at the bone. Uh, I, I feel as though their, their, their happiness kind of stops where their possessions stop. Whereas people who live... Uh, kind of dialed up to 11 and with a creative heart that happiness seems to go all the way through um so i'm very fortunate in that regard for, for somebody who is you know a, a, i am bipolar I, I i am very fortunate that my my happiness lives in a safe place and i get to write without it ever really without it dragging me down the way that it used to so that's a that, that's a very I'm, I'm very grateful for where i am in in my career and in my life but I'm now at the stage where I'm kind of helping other writers to stay sane. Um, it's a very, very difficult thing. It's in 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 2022 more than any any other time in our lives. There is this horrendous <coughs> idea that um, if you if you make a living in the creative arts, that you're essentially a professional hobbyist. Um, you know that. I don't know if you remember during lockdown, but. The amount of artistic people who are being told to retrain as financial advisors and accountants and various other bellends. Um, I, I, I cannot for the life of me understand why we would hold up people who sustain this status quo as, as being somehow better than those who visualise a better one. Um, you know, imaginative, creative people, people who who care about one another, who, who try and make their, their their visions real. Those are creative people, and I think the creative arts are an incredibly important part of, of living well. Um, so, yeah, that's where, kind of where I'm at at the moment. So I write one or two books a year. Um, I have literary mentees, people who I'm trying to help to write their own work. Uh, I do manuscript assessments. I teach creative writing. Um, and I am very much uh, an, an author all the way through. Uh, there is not a moment in life when I'm not thinking about storylines, characters, plots. Um, a lot of people, when they come and see me uh, uh, give a chat, they want to know if there's a magic formula. How do I write? How do I become a novelist? You know, where do I begin? Um, and it is daydreaming. It's switching your phone off and taking your mind for a walk. And the things that you notice when you're out, ask yourself, those things that you want to tell the person that you love when you get back home, oh yeah, I saw this squirrel, right? Whatever it might be, or oh, oh I found a four-leaf clover again. You know that place where we once saw that thing? It was just down there. What you're doing there is you're telling a story. It might not be the most fascinating story on earth, but you're making a connection. You're sharing an anecdote. 
Um, and it's the same when you're writing a 100,000 word novel. You're thinking of something that you would want to tell somebody else. Um, so, for example, my, my, my first novel, uh, Dark Winter, it was started with an idea. I used to work in this rather manky newspaper office in Hull, um, and we didn't have any art on the walls, but we did have one framed front page story. And it was about this seafarer who, in the 1960s, had been lost overboard um, off Iceland and um, along with the rest of the crew, presumed dead. And about a week after he'd been, his wife had been told he was dead, uh, he phoned her from a hospital um, in Isafjord, uh, in the far north of Iceland, and said, no, I survived. I'm, I, I washed up on this little tiny crop of, uh, this little out, outcrop, and I was rescued by a shepherd. And I've been eating puffins and trying to find my way back ever since. And it was this extraordinary story which I read it every day, same same words, same guy. And I just kept, every day I kept thinking to myself, I wonder what it feels like to be the only guy who survived when all your mates, like all your mates have died and you survived. How could you, even if you've only got a whiff of existentialism about you, how could you not spend your life wanting to better understand why you were chosen to survive and all of these other people weren't? Like, would you live a a noble life or would you go off the rails and I kept just kept having this guy in my mind um, until eventually I thought to myself uh, miracles are extraordinary things by 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 definition why did he get a miracle who else gets <coughs> miracles so I started researching other people who'd been the only survivor the only person who had walked away when everybody else had gone and this really mad plot developed about a serial killer who was who was targeting sole survivors. So the only people who, who'd who walked away from something, um, he was taking that miracle back. He was he was basically saying, no, that's, uh, you don't get that miracle. And it all boiled down to this really weird concept that used to exist for hundreds of years and that, that we don't really have anymore, which is that, the, that, that mercy could be finite, that there could be a, a finite amount of mercy in the universe. Um, and that used to be very much a part of theology and people used to discuss it, uh, uh, you know, about, well, let's not, do, does this person deserve a miracle? Let's not waste it on this one. So this really mad concept that would have been quite literary, I turned into a crime novel with a serial killer who was killing sole survivors. But that was where the idea came from. And 17 books later, I'm still having mad ideas, um, of just questions, just what ifs. You know, like like right now, it's not difficult for me to conceive of the idea that something happens that means we're all trapped here overnight, right? And I can conceive of, of a dozen different ways that, that that I could add drama to that situation. Or perhaps it could be, oh, Steve closing the doors, perfect time in there, yes, yes, yeah. It could, I mean, let's be honest, Steve could have actually brought us all here in a sort of Agatha Christie and then there were none style. Um, but for as long as these ideas occur to you, as long as you think to yourself, I wonder how this person would respond to that situation, then you've got a book. There's absolutely nothing to stop you having, having a book. I mean, you, my friend, you, you decided one day, you know what You know what we need out, out, out near Wigton? Biking Longhouse. Yeah, yeah. of course you do. And you yeah. set about doing that. Now, if I was writing about that, that would be happening at the same time as something significant within your life. Right, because we, you know, as readers, we need that narrative to be able for one thing to be a, a map of another thing. 
But I, 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 that, that two, three, four years that you took doing that, that is a structure of a novel. I mean, you'd, you'd have highs and lows, and you'd have moments where you, you know, you wanted to go and chuck your tools off a cliff, and you know, there'd, there'd, there'd be things when it was going wrong, people trying to stop you, and then there'd be a wonderful moment of near triumph, and then no doubt something else would go wrong as well. And we know what that looks like. We've seen films, we've read books, and we know human beings, and we know that it does. It goes up and it goes down. But being invested in that character, wanting them to succeed, wanting to sort of hold their hand as they go through the bad times and raise them up as they go through the good, that is what the act of reading is. It's this, it's, it's this act of union between you and a fictional person. And I love the fact that I get to, to create somebody in my mind that other people who I'll never meet get to fall in love with or, or who get to grieve for. Yeah, one of the things about being a crime writer is I inv- I create people to kill, um, which is a fairly odd situation. But sometimes you create them, and the only thing that can, that they, they only live for that one moment. They live to to be a tool in a story. So I have to invest them with as much backstory as humanly possible, so that I feel as though they've lived a full life. And the more I think about somebody's backstory, the more I think about potential subplots and other ways that. Am I, am I even telling the right story now? I've thought of, I've thought of something more interesting in this guy's history. Maybe that's the story I should be telling. And that sloshing around inside your mind, trying to decide what's real, what's what works, what doesn't, where to start, where to finish, it's the best fun that your mind can have. To the point that I don't really know what people who aren't writing are thinking about. Because it must be awful. It must just be... You must just have to engage with reality full in the face yeah, and and I find that just I can't even conceive of such a thing but then again I go too far the other way in that I'll drive a hundred miles past my house following an idea to its conclusion and realize that I have actually been disengaged with reality for for mile upon mile um, so yeah it's it, it is in many ways it's I feel as though for all that there's been loads of downs I, I, the fact that I've not never fallen out of love with writing and the act of storytelling and the joy of meeting readers and the joy of seeing readers become writers, it's just the best. It really is the best. And there's so many people in my industry who are very fragile. Um, you know, their, their ego is, is, is just, it's just it's made of dragonfly wings. It really is. And they need other people to fail so that they can feel as though they've succeeded. And I'm the opposite. I, I want people who've worked for this. I want them to, I want them to rise. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I wish harm on David Williams. I mean, there's no, you know, it'd be wrong to do anything else. But I, the the very fact that Emma Thompson has decided she might write a children's book and that the, her a publisher asked her if she'd want to, love Emma Thompson. But you know, what chance does that give anybody else? If you can just be famous for one thing, so they presume you'll be good at another. Those kind of things annoy me. <coughs> but when all said and done, I can't change publishing, I can't change Tesco, I can't change Amazon, but I can make sure the next book that I write is the best book that it can be. And the characters are real and well-rounded and believable. The things that happen to them will provoke an emotional reaction. Um, and that, you know, it's there. It's on a library shelf. You don't necessarily have to go into Waterstones to buy it. You can go to your library and borrow it, keep it for a month and give it back. I love that. That's amazing. I mean, that's almost like something 
from a time pre-war. You know, it's like when people used to take their baby to the post office to be weighed on the scales and wrapped in greaseproof paper to keep it warm to get it home. That's how I think of libraries. They're just these mad anachronisms, but they're brilliant. And we've still got them. Um, I mean, you know, God knows what Suella Braverman's going to do with them. But nevertheless, we have still got them for now. And just this idea that you can find this shared kinship with people through the act of reading. I love it. I, I love that young people, especially teenagers, are now so zealous about fan fiction. And, you know, there's people who who will have fistfights in the street over whether they'd be Slytherin or Hufflepuff. And they, it really matters to them. And that's brilliant, because that was me. And that, that was me 30 years ago. But that passion's still there, even though people are still, you know, there's so many different, so many different things that want your time so many of the things that want to entertain you and there are people who are still going upstairs getting into bed with the you know slipper socks on and opening something and reading words on a page that flood into their mind and create images that's just brilliant that's for a, i don't know what it is that separates us from the animals it's not just thumbs but there's something that separates people with souls from people without and it seems to me it's whether or not you can read words on a page and 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 find yourself goose pimpled by them. And if you can, then you're my sort of person. And if you and if you can't, I just think you haven't found the right book yet. Um, I, I really do hope that that the people who've turned away from from novel reading, novel writing, poetry, I hope that a situation arises that leads them back to them. You know, I, I wish that doctors would stop putting copies of golf magazines in receptions. You know. <laughs> For goodness sake, just chuck an Agatha Christie in. I don't care what's wrong with you, you'll feel better. Stop having this all this aspirational shit. We don't, we don't need any of that. We don't need Cumbria Living magazine or anything like that. We need books full of stories and, you know, whether the world... I, I mean, I'm not standing for election anytime soon, but, you know, come the revolution, just remember that there's this side and there's that side. So, um, so that kind of takes me up to date. Uh, I'm busy writing a book at the moment that's due in before the end of the year. And it's only 20,000 words long and it's almost, uh, well, it's either not quite started or it's almost finished. I can't decide which, um, but it, it does suggest to me that next year, the year that Nicola has told me I'm taking a year off from writing um, to recharge my batteries and, you know, fall in love with it all again a little bit or just come up with new ideas. I think it might be the right time um, because I love the idea of, I love my stories in my head and I love reading them back. But there are times when I think, I wish there was like a USB port in the back of my mind to save me the indignity of spending five hours typing because it's the only way to get it on the page. But, you know, we're not quite there yet. Um, so, yeah, so it's all going moderately well, I think. Um, my books are still due to be made for the screen, whether it happens or not, I, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, because if people want to see how I see my characters, it I've written the books. So, you know, that, that if you want to see, I've achieved the thing I want to achieve. If it can inspire somebody else to, to make a film or a TV series or something, great. But I don't know about you, whenever I've enjoyed a book and then I see the TV adaptation, I'm more annoyed than, than anything else. Peter Robinson, who wrote uh, the um, Alan Banks series, um, he just died a couple of weeks ago, actually. He was a good friend of mine. Um, and I did so many events with him over the years. And I tell you, there was not enough money on earth to compensate him for the amount of questions he got on Stephen Tompkinson 
playing Alan Banks in the TV series um, because every single time he did an event with him, there was always some elderly lady um, putting her hand up and saying, I just want you to know I love your books, but I hate Stephen Tompkinson as, as Alan Bank. And he's like, ah, well, don't don't watch it then. Just, you know. And it, eventually he did actually lose it one day. It was glorious. We are in Harrogate and he'd, all of these twin set and pearls Tories had been having a go at him. Um, about Stephen Tompkinson and he went you do know it was going to be Ross Kemp if it wasn't Stephen Tompkinson don't you and they were like oh fair enough then yeah yeah <laughs> it was the killer blow um, I'd, I'd, to be fair I did. I was once on stage with, uh, with Lee Child um, and they were asking him about how he felt as, of, of Tom Cruise playing Jack Reacher um, and he'd been asked the question so many times uh, and his, his, his answer was the money does help to cushion the blow. Um, and I think that, that's it. Yeah, just leave it there. Leave it there. Um, so, yeah, my little girl has been remarkably uh, good. I will look, listen to the recording back to see what you were saying about Daddy being dull. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't mind. Uh, no, just ignored me completely. That's my girl. Um, but if you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to, to answer them. Um, if not, just just have a generalised chat about books to be honest I appreciate the fact that you've come out on a really really bleak day to uh, come and listen to me it's still it's still quite a nice feeling to be honest uh, can I presume that you have a, a, a passing interest in, in books do you have an artistic soul in some way maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I think that there's I, I think at least one of you has no. has a creative urge inside you are you sad? <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm afraid it's just um, rather terrible fan fiction. That's hey, fan fiction is a really good place to start. The reason yeah, the fan fiction is so popular is because you don't have to world build. <clears throat> that world building is already there, but you're missing out on the joy of world building. Um, look, one, one of my daughters, she's a wonderful writer and she's a world-class procrastinator and she will spend days, weeks, months and years building Pinterest boards um, of her characters before she starts to write um, because she enjoys that more than the actual writing process. But it's a great place to start. Yes. It also depends on the epoch. Um, so uh, one that I do is for like fifth century Wei Dynasty and there isn't much surviving documentation. I, do so, I don't read classical. Okay. Writing, so there's quite a lot of stuff to like sort of learn in Mandarin. So it's like bits that wow. I can understand. It's, it's, it's almost like world building. Almost. Well, and also, there's, there's going to be very few people able to contradict you either, is there? Let's be honest. <laughs> Anybody who gets in touch with you and says, I think you'll find that uh, that, that she had a centre part in, not a side part in, you'll be like, oh, yeah, all right, fair enough. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll name a character after you in my next book, no, no problem. Um, but no, that's really interesting. So do, tell me how, when you start to write, okay, how... Do, is it invigorating? Do you feel excited by the act of writing? Oh, yeah. It, it's wonderful. Um, it's also quite nice, right, because we work in hospitality, so normally we get everyone else's stories. You know, oh, wow, they'll okay. they just tell you their life story. As yes. Well, you're not Often the same story as well. Oh, we went up this hill. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> but my feet got wet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is there an ending to that? No. Is there an ending? Is there a point? Yeah. But yeah, no, so it's just nice to think outside of, you know, the different grooves that you might have. Absolutely. Well, I mean a lot of, a lot of a lot of writing tutors will say write what you know. 
um, because they, they, they believe that that authenticity is more important than anything else. I don't think that. I think I think right what excites you know if 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 you genuinely if you love nothing more than the idea of, of writing an epic 20 page battle scene um do that and then try and work just just reverse engineer it as to how they got there and what happens next and then you've had the fun and you've then you can work it into a plot if you're necessary but for me everything starts with character you know the second that you've got a character in your mind who starts talking to you and who and you want to put them in situations you know the, the, for me the act of writing is i create a, a, a sense of normal a sense of what's reality and then i just throw a hand grenade into it and see where people land and it's it's glorious it's the best feeling with so. some of your um, like following your posts though and often you'll call out to the hive mind yes indeed say, does anybody know anything about farm limbing in the 17th century yes yes yeah. and somebody always does somebody yeah. always does yeah but do you, do you have those things like do you know in advance in a couple of days i'll get to that bit and yeah put it out in yeah advance? I, I mean if it's if it's uh, i pick a theme or something approximating a theme before i start writing anything what what am i going to be exploring within within this book uh, and it, often critics and readers won't even know that was the theme afterwards it's kind of neither here nor there to the overall book but it's things that i want to spend some time within um but yeah there's certainly times when i i can sense that for example the book i'm writing at the moment i i know that the there's going to be a lot of um happens within a mine an old fluorospar mine um in on, beneath weirdale and i know that i could describe a, a mine because i've seen movies uh, and i've seen snow white um <laughs> But I don't feel as though I know know it enough to be able to to do more than a pale approximation of, of of the reality of it. So I want to spend time with people who do know it, so I can do it justice. Um, and also because everything I learn sparks a new idea. So yeah, if I don't know about something, I, I can't just fudge it. I've got to I've got to find out. It's just the difficulty is that once sometimes you can absolutely cram so much research into your head that you want to put it all on the page so that people know how hard you've worked. Um, and sometimes it, there's, there's books, especially by really, really famous authors, where you can see where the editors are frightened to tell them you've gone, you've gone too deep into this. We don't need that. I mean, you can see with the Harry Potter novels where they get bigger to the point that and it's because, you know, by the time of book three, no editor is going to turn around to to check here rolling and saying you've overwritten this a bit, Joan. I think to be honest, could you could you shave a hundred thousand words out of it? It's just not going to happen. Um, so yeah, if there's something I don't know about, I, I'm making my point to to know about it. Uh, but it does fall out of my head again just as quickly. Uh, so when people are asking me questions about books I wrote two years ago, um, I'm, I, I don't know. I've no idea. It was a pre I probably felt like that was the right thing to say at the time, but I have none of the knowledge anymore. So it's kind of it keeps it keeps it nicely trapped within the page. Everything that I've used has ended up there for a purpose, so I can let go of it. So, well, did, any questions, or shall I uh, let you return to your lives? Just um, how did it feel going in from contemporary crime then into historical, and then into um, mental health? Oh uh, well, contemporary crime. I I won't say I can write with my eyes closed because that does it a disservice, but after many books and having many years as a journalist and lots and lots of, of contemporary characters that I can just 
pluck off the street and <coughs> put in. I've reached a stage where I know how to do that. Um, and I know how to do it, you know, with a certain degree of, uh, yeah, I, 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 I can paint those, those pictures. Um, the reason that I wanted to write a historical crime, um, or, well, a histor historical thriller, I suppose you'd call it, was because the idea that I had wasn't going to work um, in modern day. And I thought to myself, well, there's no good reason why I couldn't set it in another time period. I just don't know very much about that time period. But I, like, well, I do know about people. And I do have this idea that if you go back thousands of years, I'd imagine that cavemen wouldn't be that dissimilar to, human, to, to as we are now. You know, you'd still have people who, you still have hopes and fears and dreams. And I feel as though I could write a person and understand a person at any point since we, since we climbed down from the trees, really. So um, I wasn't frightened about that aspect of it, but there was a lot of asterisk leaving during the writing process because, like, for example, I, I know if, if McAvoy, my main character in my contemporary stuff, if he walks into a bar, I know what he's wearing on his feet. I know what he's going to order when he gets to the bar. I know the noise that he's going to hear. I know the noise that his boots are going to leave on the floor. So I can visualise everything and I can write it. If I'm writing about Hull in 1849 during a, during a cholera outbreak, I don't know what's on the guy's feet. I don't know whether he's going to step on stone, straw or squelch. Um, I don't know whether or not he's going to get a drink that comes out of a, a, a barrel or hand pull. I, I don't know any of those things. But I know that he's a guy who wants to drink and he's coming to get information. So I can write that scene without any of the detail and then go back and basically make sure I've got the detail right. And it's the worst bit is when you go back and the detail is so much more interesting than what you've written that you would have written it differently if possible. But yeah, I think most serious historical fiction writers do it differently. Um, but it seems to work for me. Sunday Times Historical Book of the Year in 2016. So, you know, it must have worked. Um, and it sold about three copies, but it doesn't matter. It's a badge. Um, and then histor and then memoir writing, mental health, that was the most gruelling, horrifying, just ghastly experience of my writing life that left me utterly broken, um, but the most healed I'd ever been. Um, it was, I knew I had to write it just because so many people, so many people had told me how refreshing it was that I was honest about my own loose screws um, and I couldn't work out why anybody would be dishonest about it. I, it doesn't make any, the idea that it was something to be ashamed of seems absurd. That would be like not parking in a, in a, in a disabled spot, even though you're entitled to. It doesn't, it just made no sense to me. You know, you, those, those are the cards you dealt. My, my brain allows me to do this, but it also doesn't work very well in that direction. Um, so I just kind of wanted to explain myself a little bit and, it was it was difficult because you had to go back into places that you hadn't thought about in a long time or that the fog of alcohol had permitted me to look at sort of through a self-aggrandizing lens and then when that's taken away and you look at it through sheer stark honesty and you've got to you, you've got no choice you've got to accept what you've been what you are what you did um and you don't you don't ask for anything other than you say look this is me so do with it as you will. So the response to it has been tremendous. Um, it's just the only downside is that because I'm not independently famous, uh, I can't get a traditional publishing house to touch it. 
you know, if I if I was if I just won Love Island, um, I would be getting a a big six figure book deal for my mental health memoir. Being a you know a a, a known and respected novelist with a history of mental health problems means that there's no book deals forthcoming for somebody to write about it which says more about the industry than anything else really um, but I'm pleased I did it I hope I never have to do it again um, you know because I kind of once it's out there there's something so healing about getting rid of it you know that I, I, I can't imagine I'll ever read it uh, it was more just about getting it out and getting it gone but it opens up so many doorways so many people who you know quietly get in touch with you and say look I, I wouldn't say it on your Facebook page but I just want you to let you know I read it and I really admire what you did and things like that and my first thing is always like well I'm not telling you how to live your life but why would you be embarrassed to leave it on my Facebook page why would you be embarrassed to read it you know if you're, you're reaching out for something um, and I hope it helps so it's a, it's a strange one but you know I, I don't think it's run it's I think it has it has more of a life to live than it has in the past 12 months since it came out. Um, I still hope that I can find a way to, I just want to get into more heads, really. I feel as though it's the, 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 something of, of worth, where everything I know I write is, 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 is entertaining or um, poetic, but I feel like that could actually help people. And you know, there's, it's, I already have a really cool job but if I can have a cool job that actually helps people as well, it don't get much better than that, really. Um, so, yeah, hopefully there's, there's there's more to come from that. Any other questions before I chase my daughter with a bow and arrow? As you're here in the wilds of Cumbria, wearing your big coat while a thunderstorm brews overhead, can you feel a plot line for Oh, I, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, the funny thing is, because you've got the perfect framing device there behind you, the amount of different things I've seen walking in over the past half an hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've already told you about the, um, the title down the road as well, Sepulchre Beck. Absolutely. It doesn't get much better, does it? Sepulchre Beck. Yeah. That, six books from now, that'll be Mike Craven, I promise you. It is. He will. He will. I remember when Mike used to come and see me and sit in the front row like a little boy staring up at me like that. Saying, Give me your wisdom. And now I have to say, I have to. I have to poke him three times before he replies to a text. <laughs> Too big for your boots, Craven, that's the trouble. Uh, no, I, I wish him jolly well, he's a good lad. Um, yeah, but listen, thank you for paying attention. Um, I guarantee you, you will all turn up in a book at some point. Uh, I don't always know I've done it, uh, but Nicola will often tell me when people have... She recognises a character that I... You know, thought you imagined. Yeah, I thought I imagined. <laughs> But then you get other people who tell me that they know that they're in my books and I don't even remember meeting them before. So I'm like, no, you've done that yourself. This is yeah, it. No, what you've done is you've hoped that you're in this book, but no, it's nothing to do with me at all. Um, so, yeah, thank you once again for, uh, for, for paying attention and uh, tolerating my gorgeous little girl. Um, this is Artemisia. If you'd like to... Um, dangle her from the roof and play pinata she'd be absolutely cool with that wouldn't she uh, and 20 years from now make sure you read her books because they'll be even better than mine thank you very much oh, thank you thank you wow.